Dr. Sapid is the CEO and founder of Pixeller and the inventor of Pixel Chat, as well as the chair of Digital Education Group, an academic at the University of Oxford, teaching data, science, AI, and software engineering. She's also a member of the advisory board of the Royal Holloway College of Cybersecurity Doctoral Training Center, the winner of Every Woman Innovator Award. 2020, Technology Game Changer 2021, winner of the Innovation of Excellence Streaming Platform of the Year 2022, and the winner of Video AI Technology Specialist of the Year 2022. And her company, Pixel Chat, is a multiple award-winning next generation of data communications platforms with embedded translation capabilities and has been endorsed by Innovate UK, a technology success story of 2022 created by her startup, Pixella. She also has a degree in electronics engineering, PhD in experimental astrophysics and space sciences, and she's worked both in the UK and Germany as a senior scientist, academic, including at Imperial College, the Max Planck Institute, and she's also been the co-founder and the former director of Southampton Data Sciences Academy. Have I done you justice with that synopsis? Yeah, I'm getting done a bit, so it's just... <laughs> Thank you very much, Johnny. Yeah, that is really effectively it's my uh, resume biography, places I worked, things I've done. There was yeah. a lot of winners there. Um, Win- so it's like about 35 years really and I've been very fortunate but then only recently when I started working on my own technology and I put everything into my technology pixel chat people start noticing the potential of it so obviously it's an element of right time to be able to bring a product into the market. Where did your career journey begin? When you were growing up, because I've been involved in the world of recruitment careers for over 25 years and then I've placed over 3,000 people globally. And I'm always interested in the journey. How did your journey begin? Mm-hmm. Was it always something that as you grew up, you had an interest within technology and that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a very good question. I always was interested to do anatomy and astrophysics. I guess probably I could easily say I'm the first Iranian astrophysicist woman in PhD. I've done it many years ago. But when I moved to this country before the Iranian revolution with my family to Britain, and I grew up in, in the UK, then I did my O-levels and A-levels, and then I wanted to go to university and everybody told me, oh, you want, you want to do astrophysics, do something decent. <laughs> so I ended up doing a degree in electronic engineering. But I must admit, to my sins, I'm probably the only electronic engineer who can't properly solder. I was very good in theory. And actually, I, I discovered that stuff that I do is very much towards solid state physics and everything. And only because when I think about it, when I did my undergraduate degree, that was in, finished it in, God, 1983. And I was working on uh, the television at the time. And then I said, okay, I've done this. And then I started looking for another position, but I couldn't go to do something like theoretical astrophysics because I didn't have the background. And I was offered a studentship at University of Kent to work on the Yoto mission, which went to Halley's Comet. 
So I started working as a scientist doing like the imaging and you can think about these things like it's when you actually look at technology, the technology like a couple of years is an eternity. Just imagine about doing things like 30 odd years ago and we had to create a lot of things by hand. Anyway, to cut a long story short, what I did was created this dust, which was the imaging, 3D imaging of uh, Comet Halley. And then when, when the probe Giotto went to Comet Halley, we say sort of compare that to the spacecraft mission, as well as, I mean, I was really delighted <laughs> to do my PhD, spend some time in Monakia and Hawaii and wow. observation at the, yeah. So it was really an interesting journey. Anyway, to cut a long story short, what I did was I started working on all these images and I developed a process by which you could put the images of comets into this filter, Gaussian filter. And I did that about 40 times. And then I sub subtracted the final image to the original image. And then I discovered the hidden jets in the nucleus of comet Halley. And when I did that over two, three days, I could also determine the, determine the rotation period for the, of the nucleus. And then there was big thing about it. And part of my work appeared on nature and everything. And uh, well, what was interesting is that looking back, I'm not teaching AI to my students. As a matter of fact, I was telling them that now everybody talks about neural network and everything. 35 years ago, effectively. Without me knowing what it is, I applied that just by intuition, that this is the way that the systems of the, if you want to do a processing, you have to put it into a loop and do it over and over again. Then I was, I was offered the job. I was at Imperial for a college for three years, for two and a half years. And then I went to Heidelberg and I was on several postdoc positions. I was at Heidelberg, Heidelberg Max Planck Institute, and then I was also at the uh, University of Göttingen Observatory in Germany. Then, to tell you the truth, I got a bit fed up, like, like because I ended up being more or less like a glorified technician. Although I had a PhD in astrophysics, but because I was an experimental one, I was mostly treated as an IT person rather than stuff. But so I said, "Well, let me your businesses will do something uh, useful." So. I, at the time I was in Germany, I applied for various different things. Anyway, one of the applications on send off, I was given an interview by <clears throat> the organization, which is Ronhofer. They invented MP3 voice over IT, IP and things like that. It's the biggest German research lab, lab in the world. And they have got about 60,000. It is really the blueprint of the technology applied science in the world. Anyway, to cut a long story short, the, the guy who interviewed me and gave me the job, he was an ex-radio astronomer. And then he said to me, oh, look, you've got a PhD in astrophysics, space sciences, and you've got a degree in electronic engineering. I've got a perfect job for you. I said, what's that? He said, we have just won a big project to connect. This was in 1995 to connect Central Eastern European countries to internet via satellite. So you're going to manage that. I actually ended up building the first internet in Romania, Bulgaria, Slovak Republic, Lithuania, and two in Russia in 1995. I was relatively young and I was traveling <laughs> as an odd Iranian woman going and building the first internet in Eastern Europe. So you can imagine that was at the 
beginning of the search of like all these things happening in Russia. And anyway, it was a very uh, of like experience for me because even people in the West didn't know what internet was. And we, for example, Romania or Bulgaria, we connected them. They became a subnet of our labs, what it has been done for this project. So they asked me to go to CBIT and then show my project, which is called Multiserve. What do I do? And I thought, good grief, how do I show internet <clears throat> via satellite? So because our partners, they were, it was a European project, our partners were, most of them, they were academic institutions. I tell to them, okay, guys, what we're going to do is we're going to do something really interesting. I got in touch with some Americans because once we got the multi-serve up and running, then suddenly all the world got an interest. Suddenly... Central Europe, Western Europe had internet. And I remember there was a ticker on IBM that says this research group has actually created the first pan-Eastern European connectivity in East via satellite. Anyway, I asked them to get connected and for this demos. And we had some people in Pennsylvania from University of Pennsylvania. There was a various different universities that they were offering content in business studies and things like that. So they wanted to have a model of sort of e-learning, if you like, Pennsylvania to Eastern Europe, teaching business studies, marketing. We connected from Germany to Pennsylvania via ISDN at the time. And then from our side, we connected using multi-server on satellites uh, via internet to, to all the partners. And then nobody knew about e-learning. So I wrote the first virtual learning environment platform using HTML myself. So everything, see like Canvas, Moodle, and everything is primarily based on what I created in 1997. And of course I did that because again, that was some sort of an intuition for me to do. And then it was a huge success. I got a lot of publicity and then I was offered really good jobs with the German international telecom company. I remember I was offered really very good position by Deutsche Telekom. Yeah, that was in 1997 to sort of manage building the multimedia super highway in Kuala Lumpur. They flew me to Kuala Lumpur. They put me in this really fancy place <laughs> facing. I said, I'm fantastic. I'm going to have this job. <laughs> I remember they were even paying for my suit. I could claim two, three suits a year for my trip. Anyway, so I wanted to go back. And then suddenly guys at Fraunhofer, uh, they said to me, what do we do if you want to stay? I knew I wasn't German. That was a German public job. And I said, if you offer me a job at my own research group, I would do it. And actually they did it. And then I had I to stay. You managed to pick up the language? Yeah, and I became German and I had to because I was working for German yeah. civil service. Now, I, when I went to Germany, I'd speak a word of German. Yeah, I had to learn it from scratch. And then I, then I was running a, probably the most advanced entertainment, interactive television group in, in, in the world, I would say. And what I think, what I also did while I was in Germany, like towards for the community of Iranians, I was vice president of Iranian Musicians Academic Society. One thing we did was when it was the, the BAM earthquake, effectively collected a lot of money and we went to BAM and, and built the first clinic 
for the city after the earthquake and hand it over to the people of Pham. So we have even the contractors and everything. So it was more like a channel between Germany and Iran, social and cultural and stuff like that. So we had most of the physicians and most of the people working in academia they were part of this society, and I was their vice president. So I was very active at the time at that level. Anyway, in 2000, I think a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, I just want to break some of that down because <laughs> there's so much there you've done that you just, it's like, it seems like water of a duck's back, but you just got to pat yourself on the back because some of those achievements and accolades that you just roll off as if someone was eating their breakfast. It's just mind-blowing. And it's just incredible, the brain that you where you can just go from one thing to another, innovating brain. And hence why I can understand you become an entrepreneur as well, because you've done career pivots from astrophysics to then AI to data science. How is it now in terms of you've done all these things and then you moved, you've been teaching at Oxford University, haven't you, for the last 13 years, coming up to 13 years, engineering, AI, data science. What's it like to teach creme de la creme in terms of Oxbridge that usually goes into the world of work? And have you found that satisfying? And what made that transition for you to go to University of Oxford and take that leap after what you just... I have been academic, but at Oxford, I have been... It's true that I've been there like 13 years, but till 2017... I was, it was a very small part of my, I was tutoring primarily at the university. And, but I was actually full time for six years at University of Hertfordshire. I was a senior lecturer, was teaching tricks and digital technology. Then I went to Southampton University and I was teaching there masters and PhDs and stuff, but both in Oxford. After I actually set up my, the department I was working is a social education, continue education group. It's actually, it's an open access. And uh, when I joined more full time there in 2017, I started on the back of my experience with University of Oxford, sorry, University of Southampton when I set up the first online data science academy. I thought I'd start a series of sort of lifeline learning in AI and data science in the University of Oxford. And that is what I have done. And it has not taken like, a lot of symptom and everything. And for example, tomorrow I'm teaching one day, like a crash course in introduction to quantum computing. So what I want to do is the way that I have find a niche that I've done all this research, I've done all this sort of studies and things like that. I think the way that we study now with the way we learn is, has completely changed. You don't have to be a whiz kid now that you go to Eton and then you go to Oxford and then you, it's not that. It's about the democracy in learning and digital technology is bringing that. And I have actually through my educating students, I have now learned and created a niche that people, what is it that about Wikipedia? That you like because you read a sentence, you get the gist of it. So just understand that. Just imagine if you can create something, some pot potential like this. For example, with this again, I mean, I started like the whole series of these data science courses. I get students who are PhD students as well as people who are have got no qualification at all. It doesn't matter because the way that we are moving into the future 
Everybody needs these skills. And that is where I have focused now. I'm not focusing on coming with the most sophisticated algorithm because that is not really what, what targets the masses of the people. That is the researchers, people who aren't working on quantum computing, for example, but they go on to really sophisticated cryogenics, mathematics. But that is really, for an ordinary layman, that is not really what it is useful. These are all the stuff that I also learned when I became an entrepreneur, because you have got, I have to tell you something, Johnny, in the fourth, the as human beings for the past 40,000 years, 60,000 years, we lived in an analog world, Okay. And then in the last hundred years, because of the discoveries and concept, and especially in the last 20 years, we discovered the digital universe. Okay. Digital universe. And before the pandemic, I was trying to explain to my student what is digital universe and why is it the data so important? What is artificial intelligence? Data is the building block and everything. It was very abstract. After we went through the pandemic, everybody had to learn how to interact and move into this digital universe. And now, can you imagine that if we didn't have the technology that 20 years ago, first of all, 20, maybe half the world population would have died. We couldn't do any work. We couldn't do any studies and everything. It's all been done because of the technologies which created in the last 20 years. And now we are at the verge of moving into something really amazing. And this is an inclusive, this is absolutely, it's for the humanity. It's not for just one person or for one elite or something like that. Clearly, I am at the University of Oxford. I'm at the probably the best university in the world. But that is not the, that's not the message. The message is to deliver something that everybody is an inclusivity. And I'm an agent of it. I'm an Iranian woman, grew up in Britain, lived in Germany. I just, I try to, and by the way, um, I've got all these different backgrounds and I speak several languages, but everywhere I go, I always identify myself as being Iranian. And sometimes those <laughs> I bet he speaks English very well. So when he's speaking several languages and all this AI talk and everything, and it's fascinating for me because I often talk about how AI and automation is going to replace 40% of all jobs in the next five to seven years, okay? The AI and automation space. 85% of all new jobs haven't been invented yet, but 40% are especially repetitive task jobs. So, for example, the biggest career around the world is driving a car. And we've also we've all got now self-driving vehicles. It's just they need to get it to a level where it's absolutely safe. But the technology is there. It's just they need to affect it and perfect it. And there's a great person, Dr. Seppi, I don't know if you've come across him, called Ray Kurzweil. And he's a, thir- a futurist. He's the ex-director of engineering at Google. And Bill Gates says what he doesn't know about the future is not worth knowing. And he talks about 2045 and the singularity and quantum computing and how it would be a billion times more powerful than it is now. And he makes all these several predictions. And he was one of the few people that predicted that we'd be able to decode our whole DNA. And some people said, oh, it would take 100 years. And he said, no, under Moore's law, it doubles in terms of technology. This will happen in the next seven years. But he's a fascinating guy. And when I talk to people with their careers and they say, how do I compete then in terms of the rise of the robots with artificial intelligence, with automation, graining more and more ground? Because our brains are so linear 
because we have such small lifespans, but technology is so exponential. And we all live in our micro bubbles. And we think, oh, suddenly Steve Jobs over a morning eating his Kellogg's cornflakes decided to invent the iPhone. It doesn't happen like that. It's all incremental, incremental. It adds up and it's something big. And they say, how do I compete with AI and automation again? I said, there's four critical skills. That is one, critical thinking. Okay, you need to have the ability to analyze data more and more. Data is the new oil, even more so attention. The second thing is creativity. You need to be creative in terms of what you go about and how you go about things. The third aspect is community building. Community building is becoming more and more decentralized, and it's really impactful and very important to build that skill. And then the last aspect, and one of the most important is emotional intelligence, especially when it comes to leadership, especially when it comes to the way you go about these things to counter the rise of AI and automation. I would say to anyone now, you have to embrace technology. It touches everything, even in traditional sectors like the legal sector and the medical sector, which will be behind the curve. You have now legal tech, med tech, touching everything. So you either join it, utilize it, and take it for your advantage. For example, chat GBT, or you get left behind. What's your thoughts about the trends moving forwards with people and their careers and technology? Yeah, everything you said is absolutely right. But I think, I mean, because I teach this stuff and I've got a, quite a call about the evaluation of all these platforms. Yeah, people always talk about AI, but what we are doing is actually, it's a narrow AI. The narrow AI is what we do in terms of robotics and stuff. It's just a functionality. And just to give you an analogy, human brain has got two functions. The simplest way to describe it is the intelligence that we have got is one that is, does all the housekeeping, movement, stuff like that. The thing which is obviously is to do with conscious and you talk about emotional intelligence. One thing that I think it takes a long time for anyone or the current technologies move from AI to from narrow AI to emotional AI, because we even don't know. I mean, if you like, it's all engineering. When you have, when you see a system, you try to create a machine that would improve the quality of light in an analog world. And then you would do the same in a digital world. But you, in order for you to understand, in order for us to understand about the brain, we have to really understand how the consciousness, how the everything works. And we do not know. It's a long way to go. I have, I have recently seen stuff that they talk about. Okay. If the Im imaging of the, if the computer imaging is a hot resolution is good enough, we go to the level of the uh, maybe one cell and then we might be able to recreate it and stuff like that. Yeah, it might be. Or even if you talk about something like the computer self-driving cars, yeah, the 10% uh, that is remaining, that is a difficult part. Because if you have got a car, if you have got a driverless car, you live in Southern California, the weather is always nice and everything, you're not on a tracked area, that's fine. But if somebody knows a little bit about the laws of optics or physics, they know that it's absolutely impossible for a computer vision to predict if something comes up. And this is all, I think in reality, you can do things into a certain approximation, but actually try to create something into the reality of what we are as human beings and what we can do is still a long way to go. But it doesn't, we can trade off 
a lot of repetitive processes and then try to, that is really what I think going to be my, this, this is my job. I'm trying to teach people about understanding the opportunities. What can you do? What is, for example, computer vision? What is natural language processing? What is in quantum computing? What do I learn from it? How is it going to affect my job? How is it going to, what can I start thinking about? Planting these ideas. And there's so much needs to be done that it needs literally all the humanity. And if people are talking about, oh, we're going to lose our job and things like that, it's just because people are scared of something they don't know. But if they know and they, it clarifies to them the opportunities, this is really what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's about. absolutely fascinating. I find it fascinating. And often science fiction becomes science fact, doesn't it? And one of the series that I like to watch is Black Mirror, and it shows a lot of stuff where he was this person walking around and they couldn't get on in terms of either relationships, careers, if they didn't get a certain amount of every experience that they have. So every time they came into a contact with someone that you would like them, you'd give them a five-star rating or not. And if their social currency wasn't at a certain rating, they'd get less of a mortgage, less opportunity. And I, you can see it coming almost a bit. Those are the pluses and minuses. As an accomplished academic, as an accomplished researcher, innovator within the sciences and technology, did entrepreneurism come naturally to you? No, it didn't actually. I have been, I left University of Southampton when I finished the working, the, when we completed the, the Southampton Data Science Academy. It's the first online data science academy in the UK. And that is when I started working on my own startup company. And then I thought that I've got all this experience over years. I need to do something with it now. If I don't, then I would never do anything with it. So effectively, I put everything into and my approach as every academic would be mostly concentrated on the technology. But the idea that I had for my product, I had it for a long time. And that is really what you say that Steve Jobs on the breakfast is not. It's because of everything that I've done over the last 35 years. So what I have created is the next generation of data communication platforms. What that means is that you got the first telephones, which are invented at the end of the 19th century. And you've got these, so whatever, which now they absolutely do everything. But they've got one common problem, which these phones have got and the first them have got, is that if you want to speak to somebody, you should have one common language. So if you're ringing someone in Japan, you either have to speak English or Japanese or Farsi or Turkish or whatever. You can't speak English and then the other person speaks Japanese and then you communicate seamlessly. This is the problem I have solved. This is pixel chat. So you can, you can speak with anyone without knowing the language. You can speak with one and many people simultaneously. So why do you say that I would have done that? It's because when I was at Southampton, I worked with the group, which was Tim Barry, the web inventor was there as well. And if you think about the way that he has created the web, I mean, this internet and his web, and then he also had one idea about what he called a social machine. For example, if you have got a Facebook website, fa- Facebook site, that is your profile. That is your representation into a digital world. Okay. And that has become what, and then this 
page then interface with somebody else's page and so on. And then this is what we call as a social machine. The social machine builds a social network. You can truly have a social network. Currently, all the social networks are running in the content in one language per side. But you can truly have a global social network if you would be able to express yourself in your own language and other people would understand you instantly. And that is what I have created. So I have created, if you like, it's something like an app, but you can speak in your own language and anybody else instantly hears and speaks to you. And this is the most complicated piece of engineering. It's a video chat, but it's been built purpose from bottom to top. And the translation, language translation, over 100 languages embedded in it. Next week at the World Mobile Congress, our partners, we work with a hardware company. Uh, is it Bartolome? One of the prizes, the first prize I won was in 2020 because I created the peer-to-peer version of Pixel Chat for 5G networks and we tested it between UK and Singapore. And I was, I mean, the guys from Digital Catapults Network, they were speaking in English, in Farsi, and then the chap in, in Singapore speaking in Chinese could have just a complete seamless conversation using 5G network. What is now happening is that with this idea of making mobile phone more accessible, you can buy something for about $100. And then our technology could be pivot for this because you can just like converse or stream or whatever using Pixel Chat. So we already completed the product. We have tested it. And that is where... Fascinating. Elon Musk is doing Neurolinks, isn't he? Something like that. He's different, but he's doing some kind of thing where... You can uh, almost put it in your head or something. Is that right, or? Yeah, I would like to have my feet on the ground, and I don't particularly like to have things needled into my. I would prefer much more the actual tangible products that I can can use rather than something much more abstract. I'm sorry. I'm just an engineer. What has been the highs and lows of your entrepreneur, Jay? Because it's tough being an entrepreneur. I'm a business founder. It involves a lot of pain and overcoming stuff and getting through things and having that perseverance. What's been your personal highs and lows, would you say? My personal highs and lows are that something that's, I guess I've never learned. Maybe I should have. But I, I don't particularly, being an academic, you become a bit more distant. You don't like to go there and shout about how wonderful you are and everything. And so you always have got a sense of skepticism about everything you do because you have to be. And this is obviously what I noticed that in business, especially in places like Silicon Valley, is yeah. completely yeah. <laughs> overlooked. <laughs> Conquer the world with this product. Yeah, but anyway, I think one thing that it is people shouldn't really underestimate who is a good technical person or is a was a good thinker, because I maybe I learned something about quantum computing in two months, but I can also learn about selling myself maybe in six months. So eventually, when I had to overcome all this sort of like being a bit coy or whatever, then you're there and you can win the win the podium, so to say. So that has been one thing. The other thing is all 
And I think the fact, not necessarily me being a woman, but the fact that I'm Iranian, of course, in the technology area, and not so much, but that was really building up. Well, I was quite discriminated. Unbelievable. I can say that. So, such a brain. Then a lack of diversity, still with the major indexes of companies from the United States, United Kingdom, and Canada, less than 5% of CEOs come from an ethnic minority background. Less than five percent. Even the women, I must admit that I'm really yeah. surprised because not at Oxford or places like that. But I have seen that some people who are very particularly very protective of their own positions. The women who have been given positions, maybe they shouldn't. They didn't really end it. I think the problem is that when you come across people like that, you immediately notice that they get very intimidated. You haven't got a place to go. And I remember I went when I left Southampton. I went for a very interesting interview with one of these big, I wouldn't say which organization, but, and they, I went through three different interviews with them. And clearly I created the first data science academy in the UK. I got half a million from investors. I did that. I trained the tutors. I thought about stuff and everything. I go for this interviews, there's people sitting in the interview panel. They, they were all very impressed. And the third one, which was to do with this person, was supposed to be my line manager. Effectively, she told me that in the packing order, you know, you are going to be beneath me. And I could sense that from the very day that I was in the interview room. I knew everything, but at the end of the day, I didn't get the job because then they said she, she was the one who said we wanted somebody who had more administrative <laughs> skills and things like that. You know, it just didn't. And I thought, okay, even if, if I had, I mean, at the time I was very disappointed, but I think it's all meant to be that I had to go back through this process. And, but it's been very tough. It's been a very tough journey. And I think it really breaks my heart that people are, there is a saying that when you're top, people know you when you're at the bottom of people. And if you are actually trying to go and the way that people are underestimating your skills and things like that, it just, it's just really very strange. But it makes Yeah, they say scar hard. tissue is stronger than regular tissue. And there is a, definitely a problem of women in tech, also entrepreneurs, also that of diversity. And Iranians have had to suffer a lot of discrimination at times. Yes, there's great people that really made it from the founder of eBay to the CEO of Uber, etc. It's great examples. It's been more challenging, I think, sometimes than what happened in the United States, because the United States is a country made up of immigrants, based to the American dream and everything else. Different little bit of different mindset and, and all the adapting and all the changing. But someone like your credentials having those kind of issues at times, because interviewing, I still say is one of the it's what we do, but it's still one of the worst ways of selecting someone. Why do I say that? It's because it's so subjective. There's unconscious bias. There's people that get intimidated because they feel, like, oh, this person's better than I am, and depending on the mood, etc. And I'm sure an innovation of somehow will come along where they still will have that face-to-face or virtual kind of human-to-human, can I work with this person? Do they get me? Do I trust them, solve my problem, etc.? But it needs to be much more quantified. I believe in things like having blind applications almost, where people don't have that unconscious bias. Or even go to a private school, didn't quite go to that uni. And even though they're brilliant, there's so many things that go into the mix. Well, I wanted to ask you, what are the hardest lessons you've learned 
in your career and life? The thing is that I have got one motto in my life too, <laughs> actually. <clears throat> First of all, I compromise on any, everything. I was just going to say that I'm a sort of person that myself, I'm totally colorblind. Kind of me, it really doesn't matter if somebody's man, woman, whatever. For me, it's, I'm absolutely, if people who know me, my students, they would all, but then throughout my life, I have always been subjected to this. So this is, this is the irony of it. But what I think it is about making mistakes. I think there's nothing wrong with making mistakes as long as you don't make the same mistake twice. And the other thing is that I never, ever compromise on my integrity. This is the two things that, you know, form my life. And of course, what is the hardest is hard. even if you are trying, like, stick to your principles. And obviously, the factors which would affect. I think the best way, the thing which I really learned from my life is you should never, ever look at the problem. You always should look at the solution. And that is what I have learned. Because if you, and sometimes, you know, that makes you very positive, very energetic person. You want to go and achieve things. But then what happens is that if you continuously have got setbacks, if you continually get subjected to say, then you start, it's a time lag, isn't it? And if you can maintain that for a while, it's okay. But if you are subjected for this, and I think it's, the, it's about the resilience, isn't it? It's how you would extend your resilience. So many That's good points, and it's true. I always say life is about having a bouncy bum. What do I mean by that? It's the ability to get back up when you're knocked down. And I've repeatedly had a life of not hit both personally and professionally, leaving the Iran Iraq war, coming to the UK, not being able to speak a word of English, suffering an eye defect, and seeing a lot of things happen from my dad losing the family home, the business my mom having a stroke all at the same time, having to hustle from the age of 23, knowing that the walls were there to get me if I didn't stand up and grow up quicker. Um, but we all need a break and an opportunity. And because in, in many ways, life is like a game of snakes and ladders. You're up, you're down, you're up, you're down. Now, of course, we'd all like to go up, but it's the defeats and what we learn. And then when the victories come along, they taste all much more sweeter because it's been a process that we've had to overcome, we've had to go through. But when you get repeatedly hit all the time, you're human first. It does have an effect. It hits your confidence. It's your belief. It, is this ever going to happen for me? Give me a break. Stop the bad run of cycle. And you and you try to do all the positive stuff in terms of mindset because 80% of life is mindset in terms of positive kind of attitude. But there is a point as well where anyone, you do need the break. You need that run to end. How do you go about that? You just got to keep going and keep persevering, not to do the same things that are going the wrong way and hitting the same brick walls. It's like Einstein's definition of insanity. You know, to do the same thing over again, yeah, expect a result, but it doesn't work. It's, it, you have to think, let me focus on another solution. Or I'll try this and I'll try that. Because we can all feel sorry for ourselves when things are down. It's easy when, you, when it's winning. It's lovely when it's winning, you know, when you're winning. But you find out a lot about yourself, your character in times of setbacks and defeats. 
And don't get me wrong, we don't go out to the world and say, please give me setbacks, please give me defeats. Yeah, I want that because I want to experience it. No, of course not. But if we keep asking the question, we keep putting ourselves into positions of opportunity, then we will hopefully break that cycle where we then enter into a new cycle of growth, of development, and where good things come. But I think where people struggle with, they can start things, they can end things, but they get lost in the middle. And the reason being because we have this, also this instant gratification culture society, where's my claim, where's my fame, where's my glory, where's my reward, that TikTok type of attention span as well. There's so many people, they give up. They give up on themselves and they give up on their dreams. And you should never give up, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult. Keep going, keep persevering to the very, very end. And I believe that good things will happen to come with it. And I just want to ask as we come to the end of this interview, and it's been fascinating, I've learned a lot from you. What does success mean for you nowadays? I see now that my technology is coming to where it should be and the success would be that I can see people are using it across the world. They can use it as a means to communicate with others, express their opinions, share the culture. This is happening. And maybe three years ago, two years ago, it was a future distance. But now I can see that the underlying infrastructures make it available. And I wouldn't be surprised that maybe in two years' time, everybody would be using ExoChat as a main form of communication. Because it's a you have a successful Iranian podcast. Remember that, folks. <laughs> <laughs> no, it would happen. I'm sure it would happen. And I'm normally a sort of person that I don't blow my job. No, you let your actions and yeah. do the talking. Sometimes we have to have that story mes- messaging, that storytelling, that messaging, and that communications <laughs> is still important. And there is a gender gap with that. Men generally are bravado and saying, I've done this and I've done that. And women are less so, generally speaking. But it's important in that world that we live in where we're just bombarded by information. People want snap bites in chunks of why I mean, should be interested in this. Why am I compelled to invest in this, to join this journey? And it's that five-year-old test. If a five-year-old can understand what you do, then you're articulating the message well enough. My last question, which one do you enjoy more, entrepreneurism or being a researcher academic? (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking of my pension soon. I keep on talking about it. In my course, for example, I mean, it's actually, it's uh, entrepreneurship is very good in terms of now I'm just starting to see the resonance. But there isn't anything in the world that you go and you get, engage with someone you never met before. In like two hours, they become your best friend because they, they see that you are opening for them something and they become your students and they uh, is that is really very satisfying. Yeah, absolutely it is. And where could people contact you? Uh, after listening to this podcast, what's your best socials? I think people can touch me on LinkedIn and they can connect with me on LinkedIn. As I said, I'm very encouraging for the community and I think 
when I first did the interviews with, about Pixel Chat, when mm-hmm. I first did that, it was also broadcasted inside Iran by the Iranian television. A lot of people suddenly got very, very, it caught their imagination because I thought this is not really fair. And I can tell you that we are the only people that created synthesized voice Farsi. No other technology does that. So with Pixel Chat, you can speak in Farsi and people can hear it in Kazakh, Chinese, whatever. Thank you ever so much for your time. It's been a wonderful conversation. We've covered so much ground. This has been Dr. Sapide, who has created incredible things, done amazing things in the world of science and technology, breaking down negative barriers associated with people that have come from Iran. So I just want to thank you for your time and the conversation we had. Thank you so much, Johnny, for the opportunity.